What's up, people? Hotep Jesus. We back. Another sharp conversation with Hotep Jesus. Oh, my God. Hotep to the family. Hotep. Uh, it's, it feels good to be back. It feels good to be here. Uh, wonderful guest for you today. Before we get into that, make sure you go check out SysCoin. SysCoin is supporting my channel this month. SysCoin is... um. The best of both worlds, best of BTC, best of uh, Ethereum. So you got the security of uh, Bitcoin, flexibility of Ethereum. Make sure you go check them out. Uh, it's not financial advice. Devs, if you're looking to develop on a network, check out Syscoin. Maybe it's something you might be interested in. Uh, but without further ado, I have a wonderful guest today. Amari, do me a favor. Slide to your left just a little bit. Yeah. Oh, is that better? Oh, that's wonderful. Amari, the GOAT, ladies and gentlemen, many of you might not know it, but the guy you see on your screen here is the mastermind behind some of the greatest projects to ever touch this planet, one of them being Bitcoin Cash, now moving on to eCash. Amari, first and foremost, how are you? How are you feeling? Are you in good health? Are you in good spirits? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Today is a today is a good day for me. <laughs> Today's a good day. <laughs> Shout out to Ice Cube. Um, we're just gonna dive right into this information. First, I want to talk about the recent crypto crash, right? Mm -hmm. Luna and all of that stuff, like that. And then we're gonna dive into uh, some Bitcoin, Bitcoin history, Bitcoin philosophy, and uh, pick your brain about that stuff. And I think that conversation uh, could get technical and. Please do not hold back. We want all the education on this channel for our viewers. Okay. So let's get into it. Uh, the other day, media uh, basically said, um, well, shit, the markets <laughs> said we are no longer. Um... First of all, it used this term. It said that um, it's, it's, it's not decoupled. I don't think the word is it pegged. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Luna was pegged to UST and that was broken. Explain what that means and how is that even possible? Okay, so, well, yeah, Luna is a stable coin. Um, and, and the goal of a stable coin is to produce, you know, cryptocurrency whose value is going to attract some assets. Um, quite often, this is the USD, but, you know, there are stable coins that track the value of gold or, or the value of the euro or other currencies, right? But, okay, so this stable um, coin tracks the value of the dollar. Yeah, so this one tracks the value of the dollar. And um, so, you know, on the market, there is supply and demand and everything, right? So the value of things uh, uh, vary all the time. And so there are different ways to try to peg the value of that token to the value of $1. Um, Luna specifically is a category of stablecoin that is called algorithmic stablecoin. So... It's a stablecoin whose value is maintained automatically, well, <laughs> until it isn't by an algorithm. Um, and, and the algorithm uh, rely on the secondary token. And the property of that secondary token are going to change either to attract capital or to the contrary to, um, you know, when there is enough capital that is in the system to, you know, not get more. So that... When the value tends to go down, you want to attract more capital in it. And when the value goes up, you want to uh, stop capital from flowing in. And, and that's basically the, the basic idea behind algorithmic stable coins. Right, stop is right that, there. Yeah, stop yeah. right there. 
Because already, I don't know what the hell is going okay. on. Okay, um, that's fine. Ask any question. Yeah. So, how, right? Like, what is happening with Luna that's giving UST its stability? Like, people have to buy Luna? Are the um, the owners of the, the, the directors and operators of Luna pumping capital into Luna to stabilize UST? Or are they depending on the market to do that? How is that happening? Yeah, so they depend on the market. There is a secondary token. Um, so, so it's Luna and Terra. And one of them is the stable coin and the other one is that algorithmic coin. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that, you know, if there are that many Luna in circulation, you want it to be worth a certain amount of money that match the USD value uh, of the USDT that, that you are uh, transacting. And, and so what you want to be doing is that if no, the value of the asset that are locked in the system are below the value of the USDT, uh, the UST, then the value of the UST is going to go down. So you need to attract more capital into the system. And vice versa, if there is too much capital into the system, then the value of UST is going to go above $1. And so you want to put in place mechanism that's going to prevent the flow of capital in the system uh, in that case, right? So on on one side of that system, you have people who want a stable coin. And on the other side of the system, you have people that are willing to absorb the risk uh, of people wanting more or less of USDT. So you have these second coins, like it's it's... It's a financial way to split, you know, like the, the, you have like, you have the stable coin on one side and you have like all the risk that is uh, brought on the other side. And the with risk that is risk, with you... Luna in that case. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. UST uh, is, is worth, you know, $1, at least in theory. Right. And Luna, you know, the price of Luna varies. Right. And depending on the price of Luna, the characteristic of Luna are going to vary as well to attract more people or to, uh, you know, stop attracting people. So, so when you say attract people, is this the marketing of Luna that's going to attract people to? No, it's like, so you're going to have things like interest rate, for instance, um, ah, okay. or, or coins that get burned to reduce the supply. This kind of mechanism mm, um, mm. is going to, you know, increase the, the, the value of Luna and because uh, now you have a prospect that the value of Luna is going to increase, then uh, you can invest in and, uh, and that gets capital flowing in, right? And when there is too much capital that is flowing in, then those uh, different kind of reward, they are going to diminish. And all of that is computed by an algorithm. It's not like someone that is, you know, tweaking the knobs. It's like there is an algorithm that calculates what is happening on the market of UST. Yeah. And, and analyzing, you know, if it's going up or going down, and that is going to tweak the characteristic of Luna based on that. I got you. Makes sense. Continue. Okay. So, well, then what happens is that you have those mechanisms to, to, you know, exact control of the price, but price fixing is a very risky exercise on, on markets in general. And at some point, you can have a move on the market that is so big or so brutal, you know, like it happened suddenly that those mechanisms, they are not powerful enough to keep things, you know, within the right range. And, and when that doesn't happen, typically the price like goes to zero very, very, very quickly. And this is not the first time we see that. There have been a few other stable coins in the past that have uh, had similar stories. Algorithmic coins? Algorithmic stable coins, which mm. is 
category of stable coins that you know Luna is is an example of. So uh, another big one is is MakerDAO. Maybe you're familiar with with that one. is is very big on the Ethereum network. Um, mm-hmm. There is Dai and MakerDAO. Those are like the two coins, and one is pegged to one dollar, and the other one is these other coins of which the characteristics are gonna change to attract or or stop attracting capital in the system to mm. the one dollar peg. Okay, so in in Luna's case, I I heard a conspiracy theory about um, the powers that be bought thirty four billion worth of it and or something like that, then they dumped on the market. Is 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 something similar to that when it happened, or how exactly did this crash come about? Yeah, it's difficult to know. There are there are several theory and. It's very difficult to know which one is right or if it's another one. Uh, the thing is, Luna has grown quite dramatically, quite very, you know, like very quickly in a way that was not super sustainable. So, uh, at the end of the day, this is what allows an actor with a lot of capital to take advantage of of the situation. And it's it's very possible. Like we know we know for instance for a fact that several people had bet uh, you know many millions of dollars on the peg breaking uh, you know within a year and it was three months ago roughly so those people clearly you know if they're willing to bet millions of dollars they have a lot of capital uh, behind them so so they may be you know like they may be at the origin of of the big sell off uh, but who knows it's it's very difficult to know who actually did that right we don't know who but we know somebody dumped on the market yeah yeah and, and probably that person had the big short you know on the other side of that and, and made a lot of money mm, indeed so you said um something along the lines of this thing was growing you know, without stability right yeah what, what do you mean by that like what was well they were they were offering but I don't have the exact number in mind, but something like 20% API, something like that, which interest, right? Yeah. 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 And you know, like if you can do 20% a year consistently, I mean, you're better than Warren Buffett, right. As an investor. Um, hmm. so, so when you start seeing those kind of number, you always need to be a bit, uh, a Cautious. bit worried and yeah, a bit careful. Uh, those 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 kind of numbers tend to be not sustainable, and and in that case, that wasn't. Hmm. Mm. So then, once people lose confidence, um... I, I think you know. Yeah, I think one one of the things that happened in the crypto market is that we've seen swings that are so wild in the past that people have a bit of a skewed expectation of what can of number are expected on the market, right? Like. If you can make 10% a year trading, you're a good trader, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you can make 20%, you are one of the best trader in the world, right? If you can do that consistently, maybe you can do that one year because you got lucky, but if you can do that consistently and you know, like manage the upside and the risk and all of that, you are one of the best trader if you can do 20% mm. in the world. Um, and then we see plenty of crypto projects that, you know, promote this kind of return sometime even way more. And every time you see this kind of number, you gotta be you gotta be cognizant of the fact that it's probably not sustainable. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, you got my mind wandering now. Um wow, okay. Um 
do me a favor, just slide to your left a little bit. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question or you'd like to contribute to the channel, that's fine. Um, uh, go ahead, drop a super chat. Um, if you'd like to support the channel, also cash app, dollar sign, hotep, Jesus. Now the business is handled. Um, you said this has happened before with other coins. This is something that you've seen in the past. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, not so big, though. <laughs> oh, this is one of the bigger ones? Yeah, um, I think this is the biggest one so far uh, in terms of stable coin that collapsed. Yeah. Mm. Um, I have my money in an interest bearing crypto account. Um, well, some of my money, a little, little bit, right? Um, it hasn't failed yet. <laughs> but first, good move. You want you don't want to put all your money in the same place, right? right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Generally, like good advice, but I see many people in the crypto space that tell you to do the exact opposite, and they're like, "Yeah, put everything on that, track credit card debt, and whatever." Like, just don't do that. <laughs> mm. Mm. I mean, like for a few people, they are going to get very lucky and it's going to pan out and they're going to make great return. But for every single person for which that happens, there is like a bazillion of people that lose everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to just get bottomed out uh, as, as zeroed out. What's are the you, other? Yeah. There's no bottom. Right. Like zero is the bottom. <laughs> exactly. Like sometimes people are like, hey, it lost 90 percent. Like, oh, but can it be? Well, it can lose 90 percent again. There is like, <laughs> mm. <laughs> there is there is no floor. Are you familiar? Zero. Are you familiar with um, what's the name of that company? Um, the big one, the big one that sells uh, Coinbase. Mm -hmm. um, they just recently had a crash. Uh, I believe that was in their stock, though, and people started pulling out of Coinbase. Why are people so many people pulling out of Coinbase? Do you know what happened with that situation? So, well, probably each one of those people they have their own reason to do that, right? But um, many of the many of the discussion were around the term of service of Coinbase, where they effectively now explain in their term of service that if Coinbase is going belly up, then the money on the exchange is gone, right? And what if, for me, it's kind of funny because people, like every, Every cycle of crypto, every few years, you have a new wave of people that come in and that needs to learn the hard way the lesson that you know happened before. But what they describe in their term of service is something that was always true. It's just that you know they didn't explicitly say it before. Um, but you know, as as early at Mongox, right? In in the very early day of Bitcoin, I think it was 2011 that Mongox went belly up. Uh, it was the first big Bitcoin exchange. It went belly up, and all the money that was on the exchange is gone, right? This is this is what happens. And this is where the, the sentence, not your keys, not your coins come from. You probably have heard that. Um, when your money is at Coinbase, it's not you know in your control with your own key. If Coinbase fail for whatever reason, your money is gone, right? Mm -hmm. That's, uh, I mean, I find it kind of funny that people are freaking out about that because it, it was always true. And exchange going belly up is something that happened in the past. Though I think the, the risk for Coinbase is fairly, fairly low, right? It's a big actor, very well established. Um, yeah. I mean, like if they go belly up, a bazillion other exchange are going to be go belly up before them, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, um, like you said, this is something that uh, we knew. 
uh, but I don't think the general customer of crypto knew, right? Understood. So yeah, I've seen a lot of people freaking out about that. So, uh, but but Coinbase can do that. They can just run away with your coins legally. Like they went bankrupt, and they're like, oh well, you know, we're going to liquidate your coins. Where's that? I mean, crypto has to go somewhere. Technically, they are not your coins once you deposit it uh, to them, and and. I mean, it's the same with your bank. Um, you know, it's it's why it's why you have interest rate in your bank account, right? Because technically, you're you're loaning your money to the bank. It's not your money anymore. You have an IOU, like the uh, the banks owes you money because you lent them money, right? Um, and and it's the same with an exchange. Um, they don't like the money is not yours anymore. The money is being traded in the exchange, and what you have is an IOU that. Coinbase or whatever exchange you use is gonna pay you back whatever you are on your account if you know whenever you demand it. Mm, 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 mm. Okay, so then that leads me to my next question: best type of wallet, hard wallet, paper wallet, some other type of wallet. What type of wallet? Let's just say for BTC, right? What type of wallet should people have? Because I'm hearing paper wallet is the way to go. Is that true? I mean, it really depends on the risk you're worried about. Mm. But I'd say like, if you have big amounts, you want to have a hardware or a paper wallet somewhere. Um, because I mean, like, let's be realistic, even if you know computer pretty well, and I'd say like, especially people who know computer pretty well know that they are very difficult to secure. Uh, people yes. who don't know them very well, they may be under the illusion that it's easier, but it's not. And um, and you know your private key is gonna leak only once, right? Uh, once it's out there, it's out there. So, what like you're always one mistake away from losing your money. And and so if you want to have a live wallet for convenience, uh, it's good. But you know it's like your your actual wallet, right? You don't want to put millions of dollars in in your wallet in your pocket because you may lose it or you may uh, you know someone might steal it from you or whatever, right? So you want to have. The kind of money in there that you need on a daily basis, but not you know, not months and months of savings, right? Uh, same with crypto in your live wallet on your phone or on your laptop or whatever you want to use. You want to have the kind of amount that you do transaction with typically, right? For 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 that to be convenient, but you want to have your saving either in a hardware wallet or a paper wallet, mm, or a paper wallet. Yeah, and and. Paper wallet, but probably not in paper. Like the word paper wallet is generic. Um, if this is, you know, if this is real amount of money, you probably want to engrave that in the plate of metal. Some people do that, for instance, or like you want to put that on some durable material, right? You want and 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 put that in a secure place. So basically what you're saying, paper wallet, explain what a paper wallet is. It just means you just wrote that in keys to where. Yeah, that's that's the idea, right? So to do transaction with any cryptocurrency, all the, like the specifics are gonna change the technical specific. But the basic idea is that you have a private key. It's it's a secret number that you need to run some computation. Um, and and the goal of the computation is to prove that you know the private key and you authorize the transaction without revealing the private key. Um, if if you can do that, you know everybody on the network can verify and 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 you know decide that the transaction is valid. So if someone else has your private key, they can do the same transaction as you would with with your coins, right? For the network, there is no difference. So if your private key leaks 
to anywhere whoever have access to that leak uh, can can spend your money uh, instead of you and probably send it to themselves <laughs> so 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 what you're gonna do instead is write that private key down on some piece of hardware right that is not connected to the internet and mm. We call that a paper wallet, though it doesn't need to be paper, right? But mm. you know, printing them on a sheet of paper is is a very convenient way to do it. Now, be careful if you print that on a sheet of paper. You do that for a computer that is not connected to the internet, or you lose <laughs> you lose all the benefit of doing it, right? Because the mm. the goal is to have your private key somewhere that is not connected to the internet. So you know, mm. do that offline. Um, and and on that pre- on, on that paper you are going to have either what is called a seed phrase. So it's a list of words that you can type into a wallet to recover the money or sometimes a QR code that you can flash uh, and, and recover the money that way. And either that seed phrase or that QR code is a representation of your private key that, that the wallet can understand. And so you're going to keep that in some place very secure and and basically, that's the idea, right? And and you can put your saving on, on there. Mm, okay. Well, so, on there, it's not like physically on there, right? It's right, what right. People have, have a bit of a trouble to understand, but uh, all of that is numbers, right? Yeah. Um, and and associated with that number, that is the private key. There is an account, or you know, an address, or you know, whatever, depending on the system, and, that's and that a, one is going to be your saving accounts or it, your if saving I address. Have, if I have a million dollars worth of whatever, that's a tremendous amount of responsibility we're dealing with, Amari. Like, yes. if I have my bank and I have a million dollars in the bank, mm-hmm. and they lose my money, it's FDIC insured. So tell me if I'm wrong here, but I believe the future of crypto is an insurance. Uh, I think there are, yeah, I think there are services that are effectively like bank lags that, would be very beneficial for the space. I think people are a bit uh, a bit naive about that. But securing securing a million dollar is is not that easy, right? Um, and you know, you probably don't want to do like we see that in the news actually quite regularly, where you have like crypto people that brag about having made you know like big amount of money um, with crypto and stuff like that, and and you see people like you know going to them and, and, and rob them effectively, right? And and uh, well, yeah, you know, like physical security is difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so um, if if you have a but but you can even go in a bank, you know, like in in, in some banks you can rent a locker that is going to be secure in the vault or something, right? And you can put a paper wallet in there, for instance. Some people do that. Uh, but but yeah, if you have millions of dollars to put on the paper wallet, you probably don't want to put it under your mattress, right? You want to think carefully about where you put it in the place that is secure, in the place that is secure against attack, but also in a place that is secure, like it's not going to flood or catch fire or something like that, right? Because uh, same thing, that's why people engrave them in plates of metal rather than paper, right? Because plates of metal is likely to survive a fire, whereas... Um, Whereas a paper is not, right? Or a flood. And I mean, okay, it's unlikely that your house is going to catch fire, but are you willing to bet a million dollars on it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's a lot of responsibility, man. And, and, and I think that, you know, some people, they're like, hey, you know, the banking industry, evil, blah, 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 blah. 
Okay, that's all fine and dandy. However, um, the the price of freedom is responsibility. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, enough with the basic stuff. I just want to get my audience caught up on what's happening here and what they're getting themselves into a crypto. Let's dive into some some juiciness as if we haven't gotten juicy already. Um Should we talk about that? Or, no, let's talk about the the let, let's 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 go in order. Store of value, medium of exchange. BTC to me is not money. It's more like maybe gold or speculative asset mm -hmm. agree disagree agree and i think most people in bitcoin would agree right they say it's digital gold uh, so yeah right yeah. so so then they'll pop up and say and i'll say well satoshi intended for this to be a peer-to-peer -peer version of digital cash to allow transactions from one peer to another without the need of a financial institution right mm -hmm. okay. yes cool that's not btc so what they say is we have this cool thing called the lightning network mm -hmm. is the lightning network a good solution for the peer-to-peer -peer transactions uh and i'm what, not convinced it is so but but some people are gonna tell you oh it's evil and and yada yada i'm not convinced of that either but I'm actually in 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 agreement with Joseph Poon. I don't know if you're familiar with Joseph Poon, but he's one of the creator of Lightning Network. Actually, the, the Lightning Network have been invented by uh, Joseph Poon and Taj Uh So Joseph Poon is is one of the two behind it, and he was like, okay, if we assume that the Lightning Network is adopted on Bitcoin at scale, and we want to make that a, a global you know network for money, we would go from needed two gigabytes block to about 300 max blocks, right? Something like that by, by his estimation. I think his estimation are a bit optimistic, but um, this is, no, this is probably in the right ballpark. It sounded like you just decreased the block size. The block size that you would need to support, you know, global, a, a global payment network on the system. So if you don't have the Lightning Network, according to, to Joseph Poon's estimation, if you don't have the Lightning Network, you would need two gigabytes blocks. Oh, okay. That's what you're saying. Right? Okay. And with the Lightning Network, he estimate that you would need maybe 300 blocks. Oh, okay. I got you. All right. All right. Whereas the blocks on Bitcoin right now are one meg, right? So it's like mm. more than two orders of magnitude away from where it needs to be. Yes. Yes. With the Lightning Network. Right. So, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is that the Lightning Network is more of a trade-off than than the solution. Well, many solutions are, right? But <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, what you're trading with the Lightning Network is that no, the security is active rather than passive, right? So if you have Bitcoin saved on your paper wallet, you can let them there forever and nothing is going to happen to those coins, right? right? You don't need to do anything active to keep those coins secure. When you are using the Lightning Network, you need to have a machine that is connected to the network all the time that's going to you know, watch what has, what's happening on the network and react in the right way to ensure your security. Mm. Or give that responsibility to somebody else. Or you can pay someone to do it for you. Yes. But but either way, the, the security model goes from passive to being active, which is always a problem because, you no, know, this, this system that needs to watch the network, you know, it may fail uh, in some way. And then, you know, you're susceptible to attacks. And the second 
the second trade-off that you're making is with liquidity. You need to find channels and you need to find routes through, you know, like if you want to pay someone, effectively, you know, I'm going to have a channel. Let's say I want to send a payment to use for Lightning Network, but we probably don't have a channel directly, you know, because you, you won't have like all the user have a channel one by one with, you know, everybody, right? So, but I'm going to have a channel with someone that have a channel with someone that have a channel with someone that have a channel with you, right? And in each one of those channels, there needs to be a sufficient amount of money for the value of the payment to, to be able to, to travel through that. Right. And so what's happening is that very quickly, as you make bigger payments, the amount of money that you need to lock in the network as a whole become completely astronomical. Mm. And so you know that you will only be able to do small value payments on there. And when I say small value payment, like $100 already require absurd amount of money. Like we're talking billions and billions and billions of dollars that needs to be locked on those channels for, you know, like every two pair of users have a decent chance of being able to pay have hundred bucks to each other. Um, so in itself, that's, that's, that's an issue. And it's interesting, right? Because it's, it's very much what traditional payment system are, are doing. They are trading, they are trading liquidity for, for convenience. Like they, they provide a huge amount of liquidity and they do a settlement transaction between themselves once in a while. This is, so the, the technicals, the details of the system are completely different from traditional finance, but effectively you're making the same trade-off. Mm, mm. And if one of those channels fails, poof, bye-bye goes your Bitcoin, no? Uh, no, the Bitcoin is not gone, but the payment doesn't go through. Ah, the, pay the payment just fails. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. So uh, you propose uh, what solution then? Because, uh, you know, Satoshi meant for Bitcoin to be money. Bitcoin BTC, at least, is not money. And that's fine. Um, I actually like it as gold. Um, so what is what what can be money? Is it is it is it eCash? Well, I, I hope <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I, just I'm doing my best to for it to be the case. Um, so the, the fundamental realization, like if you want to understand what you are doing, the fundamental realization is that the dichotomy between store of value and medium of exchange is, uh, is bad. <laughs> let's say it's, it bad, it's right? what you cut out. You it's, say it's what? Bad, right? Like it's, it's this whole debate is a debate that we should not be having. We should be building something that, that has the property of both. Mm. Um, because at the end of the day, it's, this is not even a different property because uh, store of value is actually a medium of exchange through time. Yes. Like yes. you're sending, yes. you are sending money to yourself in the future when, right. when right? Effectively, yeah. Yeah. or at least you can describe it that way. And so at the end of the day, this is just the same, um, this is just the same property and, and all the, all the mess that we see with traditional finance, uh, come from the fact that we don't have a technology that is good at both. So you want to have those property that Bitcoin has where you have like a limited supply and uh, well, basically hard money, hard money properties, right? So limited supply, divisible, fungible, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but you also want that to be a good medium of exchange. So you want to work on, on scalability solutions. Um, and one thing that is quite amazing 
is that the design that is proposed by Satoshi with very little changes can actually scale pretty big. And I mean, I have a, I have a good news and a bad news. Uh, there is another project that is working on the same technical solution as we are. It's the, the project Hamilton uh, from, uh, from the CDBC, right? So uh, clearly they think, they think that the technology is good as well. Um, but but I hope that people are gonna choose ours rather than theirs because <laughs> I, I don't yeah I, I don't like the words that is coming if if people choose theirs. I was gonna ask you about the CBDC. Well, um, so technically it's very similar to what we're building, at least on the scalability front. Yeah. So it's. But I don't know if you want to go in in the detail, but absolutely I do. Okay, so. <laughs> So Bitcoin, um, the, the principle behind Bitcoin is a UTXO model, right? It's quite different from Ethereum, for instance, that is an account model. So the account model is probably something people are very familiar with, because if you have a bank account, like the whole banking system works on the account model, right? You have you have an account and you can put and remove money on it and stuff like that. Uh, the UTXO model is a bit different. You're talking um, about user transaction operations? Excuse me? Uh, what is UTXO? User transaction operation? Uh, UTXO is uh, unspent transaction output. Unspent transaction output. Okay. Okay. So when you do a transaction on Bitcoin, it has a set of inputs and a set of outputs, mm -hmm. right? And in each of those outputs, there are going to be uh, what is called a redeem script. So it's, it's a script that describes the condition under which this coin can be respent, right? Mm -hmm. So if I'm sending money to you, I'm gonna do a transaction that have two outputs, uh, one that have a reading script with your your address, right? The reading script is gonna say, oh, if you can sign the transaction with the private key that is yours, then you can respend the coin. And the other one is gonna be um, an address of mine uh, for the change. And the inputs are gonna be a set of UTXO that I control and and that i'm using to fund that transaction right because i cannot create money out of thin air it needs to come from somewhere and so now all the transactions that i refer to in my inputs are gone from the database and two new utxo have been created one for you and one for me and those utxo are immutable right they are created they stay the same way and when they are spent they are gone poof right okay so it's different from the account model where the account stays there forever and money is added to the account and money is removed from the account and money is added from the account and, and so on, right? Okay. In that case, you have UTXO and every time you do transaction, you destroy UTXO and you create new ones. Um, technically, it's at least, you know, intuitively, it's probably a bit harder to wrap your head around it, but technically it has very good properties mm. um, because anything that has to do with mutation imply ordering. Like if you... Mm -hmm. If you want to do several transactions that involve an account, they all need to be ordered in a very specific way, mm. right? Because the state of affair is going to change and, and, and each transaction depends on the state of affair, right? So if I send several transactions and the money to different people, uh, at some point, my account is going to run out of money and the transactions that are before that point, they are going to go through and the transactions that are after that point, they are not going to go through, right? So all the transactions that involve my account, they need to be sequentially uh, ordered, mm. right? They need mm. to be happening in a specific order. Yeah. Uh, whereas because UTXO, you create and you deal at them, 
for each transaction is binary. Either the UTXO exists or the UTXO don't exist, and there is no notion of order. Mm. And because there is no notion of order, you can scale the system much faster because you can do all of it in parallel. And and so like that's the, that's a high level overview. So in Bitcoin first, you do, you have this UTXO model that is inherently way more parallel than than the account model. And then if we change the block format, so in BTC, there is a constraint in the block format that the transaction needs to be topologically ordered within the block. That means that all the transaction that are in the block, if, if some transaction is spending money, the transaction that is you know funding that money needs to happen before in the block. Yeah, absolutely. Well, like that's what you say intuitively, and this is why it's been programmed that way. But that's actually not a good property. You mm. want to get rid of it, and you don't need it. Really? Yeah. Um, and and the reason is because it's another step in the process where you need to do things sequentially. Mm. And when you do things sequentially, it doesn't scale. And what you mm. want to do instead is that you want to go over all the the whole block. You want to add all the outputs of all the transaction in the UTXO set. And then you do uh, a second pass on the block where you spend all the inputs. Mm, mm, and mm, that's interesting. Like the overall computation uh, is gonna like check out or not, you're gonna know it. Yeah. And and that means that you can do all of that in parallel. Like you can have each each one of those two steps can be done in parallel. You can have like as many CPU cores or even as many machines in parallel doing a chunk of the block in any other and and then do the do the second step mm, because all the details are inside the block yeah you treat the block itself as an atomic operation effectively that's going to happen as a whole or not happen at all okay right and um this is something that we change on bch that we change on Nikash. this is something that the project that we've done is adopting as well mm. and it allows to verify blocks um <laughs> Who's adopting yeah. it? You said who's adopting it? Uh, project Hamilton, which is the oh, they've the adopted this the CDBC. Yeah, yeah, they are. They are adopting. They stole it. your shit. Well, <laughs> it's you guys are are, are using mean, the, the same technology. <laughs> the same yeah, technology. we're we're using a similar solution, though you know there are some details that are different, but the the idea is similar. And also, like you say, this they stole my stuff, but. Like I'm not the only one doing it. Who, who came up with those ideas, right? Like okay. this is. Um, I'm just. Trying, I'm like, just trying to start shit. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you think about scaling, and so I, I, like I don't know, like people probably don't know, but before working on that, I was working uh, at Facebook, and and this is kind of like when those scalability issue they started to rise in crypto. This is when I, I decided that I would be involved more on the technical front. Before that, I was not involved technically very much. Because before that, the problem were more like cryptography and, and security and stuff like that, which I know about, but are not my expertise. Whereas when the problem became scalability, I was like, okay, like, no, no, this is something that, that I know a lot about, so I should get involved. Mm. And, and one of, the, one of the, the key things, if you want to make your system scalable, is to remove anything that is sequentially ordered. Mm. And just have because, like, let's say, like, let's imagine Facebook. If you had to process all the stuff that people post on Facebook in a sequential manner, 
right? Like mm. you would have a waiting line, you know, <laughs> you would be typing your message and pressing submit and the website would tell you, hey, your message is going to be visible in like two hours and a half, right? <laughs> <laughs> because you would have to wait for everybody that, you know, is in the queue before you. So if you want to make a scalable system, um, you cannot you cannot do things serially that way. It just doesn't work. Um, you want to find a way to make them in parallel. Because mm. now if your system is twice as big, you can throw twice as much resources at the problem and it still works. Mm. And, and when the problem is twice as big, presumably you're going to have twice as much resources, right? Because now the business that is going on is, is twice as big. I'm 50% there understanding this. It seems like the, 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 the information of the transaction, instead of happening uh, sequentially, what you're saying is that it's happening simultaneously. They're 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 being processed, yeah. Uh, uh, at all at the same time, yes. all within the same um, storage space. Yes, no. Um, I'm not sure what you mean by all the same storage space. Well, if it's a block that's only one megabyte, it's all happening within that. The information's all happening instead yeah, of so. So what you could do, right? So what the the BTC software does. Uh, when you process the one megabyte blocks is that it goes over all the transactions one by one in the block and verify that the, the, the inputs correspond to existing outputs, mm -hmm. destroy those outputs, and then creates the input of the transaction and then move to the next one. Mm -hmm. Right? The problem when you do that is that it becomes like the bigger the block and the longer it takes to do it. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing you can do to change that. Like there is no amount of money that you can throw at the problem to make it faster. So your solution is what now? So if you want to be able to do that faster when there are more transactions, you want to be able to do transaction not sequentially, but in parallel, mm -hmm. right? You want to have a, a system that does, you know, all the transaction, but at the same time, that doesn't have to wait for the previous transaction to, to finish before doing the next one. Right. So because you're saying if you're this doing way, a transaction, you with... can have twice as many CPU cores, twice as many servers, twice as many whatever. You're gonna be able to process the block twice as fast. So, 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 so real quick, uh, mm -hmm. if, if you're uh, transacting with another individual and I'm transacting with another individual, you're saying with uh, the BTC, I'll have to wait for your transaction to go through and then my transaction to go through. And your solution, you're saying, is both transactions will happen simultaneously. Is that what you're saying? Or no? I, if I'm completely off and I sound stupid, tell me. Um, no, but I'm, I'm trying to see how I'm going to bridge uh, what you're describing me to, uh, to where I, I'm, yeah. I'm at in, that, in my explanation. So, yeah, effectively, um, because you want to prevent double spend, like at, at, at right. the core you of the problem is that right. you want to prevent double spend. You want to prevent someone from spending the same, same money, money twice. This right. is this is the hard problem, yeah. right? Therefore, you need to order things in some way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because if I'm sending some money to you and I'm sending the same money to someone else, the network is going to have to decide which trans which one of the two transactions happened first. Mm -hmm. Right? And yeah. Because... They cannot both happen. You're saying which one uh, transaction happened first? You're saying your transaction with A and B or my transaction with X, right? You're talking about that? Because um, or, or I want to understand what you're saying by transactions. 
So my transaction and your transaction don't really need to be ordered relative to each other because it's it comes from a different pool of money. Yes. So so those are never going to be double spend right. of each other, right? Okay. But what I can do if I'm a malicious actor is that I can spend, like I can send a transaction where I send money to you and then I can send a transaction where I send the same money, say, to Coinbase to fund my account mm-hmm. there, right? And there is like it's very difficult for the network to decide which one of the those two transactions are is the true ones, right? Mm. Because everybody is gonna see those transactions in the different order, depending on how they propagate it on the network. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Some of them are going to see the transaction where I send the money to you. And some of them are going to see the transaction where I send the money to Coinbase. But those two transactions cannot possibly be both correct at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. One of them has to be invalid. Mm-hmm. And so the network as a whole needs to come in agreement as to which one is valid and which one is not valid. Mm. And this is happening by putting transaction in blocks and effectively the one that is in the blocks it's going to be considered the valid one and everybody's going to agree to reject the other one. Even if previously they saw it in, in a different order, they're going to agree that, you know, the order in the block is, uh, well, the one that is in the block is the valid one and the other one is, is not valid. Mm-hmm. Now, um, somewhat counterintuitively, that doesn't mean that you have to process the transaction in the block sequentially, mm. right? Because if the block is valid, there is no double spend in the block. Uh, right? Okay. The double spend is not in the block. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So so presumably all the transactions that are in the block are not double spent of each other. Mm. So you can process them all in parallel. And if there is a problem during that processing, an input missing or something like that, then you know that the block is invalid because there are two transactions that double spend. Mm. But... In that case, you don't really care about which one was first and which one was not first. What you care is that there is a double spend in that block, therefore I reject the whole block. Mm, 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 right? Mm. So when, when you think about it that way, you realize that ordering the transaction in topological order, which is the technical term uh, uh, you know, describing the way Bitcoin does it, um, is actually not necessary. Mm. Mm. Another problem is that if you want to do that on Bitcoin, you could process of the transaction in parallel on, on Bitcoin. You know, when I say Bitcoin, I mean BTC. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you would have to verify that the block is properly topologically ordered. Otherwise, it's not a valid block. Right. right. And the problem is that verifying that first, it's, it's not useful, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a verification that you don't need to do. But Second, it's it's a verification that cannot be done in parallel. That's that's inherently sequential. The algorithm you have to use to do that is sequential. Mm, mm, mm. And therefore, it's it's always going to be slow uh, if you grow the block size very big. Mm, mm, mm. Interesting. Interesting. So if you want to be scalable, you need to get rid of that constraint. Mm-hmm. You want to say to the miner... Um, you don't need to you don't need to put the transaction in the block in topological order we we are going to get rid of that constraint mm. if you get rid of that constraint you gain a lot of uh, scalability you just dump it just dump the information in there 
Hard. Yeah, you put all the transaction in there mm. um, the way we do it, but it's not you know necessary. I think the the project Hamilton they don't require any order specifically. They can put the transaction in the other order. The way we do it is that you have to order the transaction by transaction ID mm-hmm. in the block. Uh, the reason we do that is because it allows some optimization in in uh, transmitting the block between two peers. Mm. Because, um, well, there are there are techniques that are called the set reconciliation techniques that that can be used because those two peers they're gonna have mostly the same set of transaction, right? They, you know, before the block arrived, they monitor the network and they gather transaction in what we call the mempool. And the content of the mempool of those two nodes is going to be not exactly the same, but fairly similar, mm, mm. right? And, and so you can rely on that fact to send uh, information that is probabilistic in nature that's going to allow the other node with a very high degree of probability to reconstruct the block. Mm. And if that fails, then the node say, well, you know, I don't know what to do with your probabilistic message, send me the full block. But but you can do it in such a way so that 98 or 99% of the time, the probabilistic way works. And, and what is good is that the message that you need to send now grows with the expected differences between the mempool of the two blocks and not the size of the block per se. Mm, okay. And to be able to, to be able to do that, you have a problem if you can put the transaction in any order in the block. Mm. Because, because now you just don't need to send just like the, the transaction themselves, but you also need to send in what order the transaction are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe counterintuitively, in what order the transaction are when the block grows big actually dominates the amount of information that you have to transmit. Mm-hmm. It's actually more information to transmit in what order the transaction are than to transmit the transaction themselves beyond a certain block size. Right. Um, and so this is why we order the transaction in transaction by transaction ID. So that if you know what transactions are in the block, you know in what order they are. Mm, right. Mm, mm, mm. Interesting. Very interesting. I see Super Chats coming in. I'm going to get to you guys in a second. Tobias, Rook, Carol, Criminy. Uh, Jay Pylon, great questions you guys got coming in. Um, we're definitely going to um, get those answered. Um, actually, let me ask Tobias's uh, question now since we're on the topic. And you kind of answered it, but he said difference in similarities between BTC and eCash. Yeah, okay, let's uh, let's do that. So so to begin with, eCash is a fork of BTC. So there are obviously a lot of similarity. The whole UTXO model is similar. The transaction uh, format is similar. So typically, all the software that works on BTC can be used on eCash with very little modification. And this is uh, a design decision that that you know we we intend to keep because uh, I mean like developing because and there is a lot of software that already works for BTC. So we don't want to break that, right? Uh, but we tweaked a few things. Uh, one of them is this notion of ordering in the block because it allows us to have much better scalability than Bitcoin. We also uh, have much bigger block size, uh, presumably. Uh, I mean, the block size limit, the block size themselves is going to depend on the many transactions are made, right? But we're not going to hit the roof the way Bitcoin is when a lot of people are using it. And so this is the state of affair right now. And 
we are deploying a technology called Avalanche. Um, it's no like it's it's almost there, right? It's going to be very very soon. Um, and and what this technology allows is like a lot of different stuff, but mainly uh, almost instant transaction confirmation, uh, the order of two seconds uh, instead of having to wait for a block for the transaction to be mined in the block, uh, you can have it like in in two seconds uh, confirm and it cannot be double spent. Mm. So that's that's great value, especially for the merchant more than for the users, right? Because mm-hmm. for a merchant, you like you need to know that the money is actually yours. It's not gonna go poof, right? Right. Um, so for the recipient of the payment, it's it's very important. It also increases the security when it comes to fifty one percent attacks and stuff like that. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, thank you, Carol. Um, all right, we're going to get to some of these questions uh, that the chat has in a yeah. moment. Um, I heard something interesting. I heard that um, some op codes were removed from BTC. Is this true? Um, and, and potentially, um, you know, what capabilities are, are have been removed from BTC that maybe... Um, Interesting, necessary, unnecessary, but fun, creative. Tell us, tell us about that. Yeah, so so there were a fair amount of opcodes that were disabled in in the early version of BTC uh, for good reason. The implementation of those opcodes was actually insecure. It was not done the right way, and so if if they were not disabled, the uh, uh, way it is today. So so that was necessary. Uh, generally, what you can do with those specific opcodes is fairly overblown, uh, as far as I can tell. Like people, uh, people imagine that you can do all you can do with Ethereum and stuff like that with with the subcode, but you really cannot. Uh, you can do a bit more than you can do today with Bitcoin, but not not a crazy amount more. Though there is um, there is one of code that we've added uh, that exists on BCH and on eCash uh, that is called the. Uh, um, uh, data seek verify and object data seek and object data seek verify. Um, and that opcode allows you to verify signature on custom data. And data was open a uh, tremendous number of use cases uh, way beyond what we you know, anticipated originally. So that one is good. But that one is not an opcode that was disabled that we were enabled. It's a new opcode that, that we've added in there. Mm, okay. But, but more generally, so the trade-off I think it's an interesting question. The trade-off that you make between the UTXO model and the account model like Ethereum is using is that uh, the account model allows you to do a lot more when it comes to smart contracts and stuff like that. Whereas the UTXO model is not going to allow as much on that front, but it's going to be able to leverage those limitations to be much more scalable and much more robust in in various ways. Mm, mm. Mm. And and really, the um, for us, what is really important is to make a technology that's good store valued, good medium of exchange. That is both, right? Not one of the other. Like we don't we don't get involved in that debate. I think it's it's, it's a toxic debate. Um, you want a technology that is good at both, and and so the UTXO model is is you know much more suitable to do that. Mm. Like this is where the real deal is, right? Because, okay, we, we talked about that a bit before the show, but I, I think this is probably the, the right time to point it out. Um, if you look at the legacy financial system, it comes, it comes about for a reason. It's not 
you know, it's not lizard people that came out of the sky one day and that decided, oh, the banks are going to work that way. It's it's people, they had a problem. And so they came up with a solution and they had another problem and they came up with a solution and so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, you have what we have now. Right. Right. And the problem that they had originally is that they didn't have a technology that is a good store of value and a good medium of exchange. Mm-hmm. This is like this is the core problem that they are trying to solve. And so as soon as we are, do you want your stuff to be a store of value or a medium of exchange? Like as soon as you get into that debate, you are bound to at best rebuild the wonky version of the existing financial system. You say reveal the what? Like you're going to rebuild. Oh, rebuild what's already like, like a weird version. <laughs> like all the details are going to be different, but the overarching picture is going to look the same, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, because maybe we can explicit that a bit, but all those, all those the current financial system came to be. Well, um, you got to imagine that originally people start trading with precious metal, you know, such as gold. And gold has many very good properties. Um, it's, you know, it's scarce, it's fungible, uh, all of that, right? But it's not very convenient as a medium of exchange, uh, you know, especially, especially when you start thinking about the context of the time, you know, like if you're a trader, uh, you travel around by boat, you know, you're going to move in some other country, trade goods, come back. You need to transport a bunch of gold on your ship. It's very risky. You can get attacked, especially, you know, like if you know that there are a bunch of ships traveling with a bunch of gold on them, right? Like that sounds like a pretty, <laughs> a pretty good idea to have your own ship, uh, yeah, with some weapons on it. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's pretty risky. Um, it's, it's just not a good, it's just not a good way, but this is what you have when you trade with gold directly, right? So suddenly, instead of transporting your gold on your boat, you're going to, you know, leave it to some guy's vault and the dude is going to issue some certificate that, you know, yeah, actually you have this much gold and then you are going to travel in some other country. You're going to trade certificate with the guy at the other end. You come back with the good, you sell the good, right? Then, at the end of the day, you can go back to the guy with the vault, trade your certificate for the gold. Um, and, you know, if, if, the, if the exchange of money is asymmetric, you know, if more money goes in one direction than the other, then the guy from the vault can make like one big exchange, maybe once a month or something like that with, with the other guy in the other country. And that exchange contains all the transaction, like it's the sum of all the transaction of all the people that use the services of those guys, right? So, right. so the cost of doing that is amortized over many, many people. So it's not very expensive for each of them individually, even though you need to transport some gold in like very secure manner through a bunch of countries, right? So... So, then, uh, but then you start having liquidity problems, right? Because um, now the gold is in the vault, and maybe you would have needed the gold to be somewhere else, but it's in the vault, and and so now what what do you do to solve that liquidity problem? Well, the people from the vault they're gonna start emitting a percentage more certificate than they actually have gold, and you know that because not everybody is gonna redeem the gold at the same time. They can do that, and it still works, right? And this is. This is fractional reserve banking. And like people often think as fractional reserve banking as a, you know, some evil master plan by the banker, but it solves an actual problem. It solves a liquidity problem. If you say nobody can be fractional anymore, you're gonna have a ton of liquidity problem, payment not going through um, all the time. 
so so you kind of need to do that to some extent and then you know you see what there is you know like if you go 50 percent fractional you're probably okay if you go 90 percent fractional you're probably gonna face a bank run and you know like somewhere in between is probably a good uh, a good you know point to settle on uh, and and you know you have people in finance that compute those kind of things and and it's all good but and now, now we start to have something that is like kind of resemble what we have now, right? And and you go down that road a few more steps and you get the financial system that we have now. Now, if we backtrack all of that, we can see that at the root of all of it, the problem that we have is that we don't have a medium of exchange that is a good store of value as well. We have technology that are good for exchange, like those certificates, they are very convenient to exchange and they eventually become banknotes. Um, and then you have gold that is very strong monetary properties, but that is not convenient. And so, you know, there is this concept of uh, Chesterton fence. I don't know if you're familiar with, with that idea. Sounds like German. Uh, no, Chesterton, I think it's, it's British, uh, Chesterton fence, uh, Chesterton, Chesterton. Yeah. On the fence. It's not on the fence. It's like. So there is this fence uh, that is at Chesterton, right? Mm -hmm. And some dude is like, well, this fence is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, we should just remove it, right? Like it doesn't need to, it doesn't seem to be serving any purpose. Um, so, so let's just get rid of it, right? Mm -hmm. And the other dude is like, well, you don't know why someone put that fence there in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. and, and maybe that person had the good reason to do that. And maybe that reason is not valid anymore and we should get rid of it, but maybe the reason is still there and you just don't know what it is, right? right. So before removing the fence, you need to understand why the fence is there in the first place. Yes. Right? And, yes. and there is a lot of that that is going on in crypto uh, right now uh, where people are like, well, the existing system is not so good. And I can like wholeheartedly agree with that, but um, you need to understand where that system come from. Because if you get rid of it, you're gonna get the problem back. And so you need to have a solution to that problem. Otherwise you're gonna rebuild like something that kind of look like the same thing. Um, and, and so a lot of people in crypto, they're trying to remove that, but they have not solved the problem. And so they are getting it back. And we see that with uh, uh, Lightning Network is an excellent example of that, where uh, you don't have scalability in layer one, you have something that have good money. They call it digital gold, right? And it's not for good, it's not for bad reasons. Um, the system have good monetary property, but bad medium exchange property. And what do you build on top of it? Well, a system in which you need to lock your coins and where you're trading scalability for liquidity, which is completely different from the guy keeping the gold in the vault, right? Like all the details are different, but the trade-off that you're making is exactly the same because, um, uh, you are solving the same problem in the same way at the fundamental level. You are trading scalability for, for liquidity. Mm. So you're going to have more scalability and, and more liquidity problems like you did with the guy with the vault because you didn't solve the problem. The, the actual problem was your technology was not a good store value and medium of exchange. Mm. 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 All right, so help me understand the liquidity thing. You said uh, fractional reserve yep. banking isn't actually fully evil. Maybe at 90%, it's a bad idea, but at 50%. Um, give me some examples of when you'll need some liquidity um, 
over and above the amount of uh, reserve you have of whatever thing. Yeah. So, you know, people are moving around all the time. Um, they are exchanging payment with people in different banks or even in the same banks, but in different places. And you want all those payments to go through, right? Like there would be a tremendous cost in the economy if many of those payments were to fail. But for those payments to be able to go through, if you go like no fractional at all, you need to make sure that all the bank individually that are involved in processing all those payments, they have enough money and, and at the moment where the payment goes through to be able to process it. Mm. Right? Mm. And, and because they don't know exactly how much money is going to flow like here and where or what the flu is going to look like exactly, they need to you know, have a fair amount of padding, right? Because mm -hmm. if they have just the right amount of money, you know that you know, this day there is more payment that is going in, in that direction. This other day there is more payment that is going there. Mm -hmm. So those extra payments that are not planned, if you have just the right amount of money, uh, they are not going to go through. Plus, you're going to spend an ungodly amount of time and energy and at the end resources shuffling all that money around, right? So that every single place has the right amount of money all the time. Right. And, and so all in all, that's a very inefficient system because payment don't always go through. Hmm. Um, you spend a lot of energy like moving money around to make sure that there is enough in every places mm -hmm. because otherwise even less payment goes through, right? So that's... So I get that's, I that's get, an inefficient system that requires a lot of uh, you know activity behind it to still works. And if you say, well, I estimate that at any given time, no more than fifty percent of my customer are gonna ask their money. And in practice, you see that it's like much less than that. Like it would be uh, a very very unusual day for that to happen. Mm. If you say that, then you can say, well, you know, I can have like that many more and and you know, that many more money in circulation and, and I'm going to fall back on my feet uh, uh, without much problem. Obviously, the more you go fractional, the more risk you're taking, right? So mm -hmm. now you have a cost if you don't do it and you have a risk if you do it. And there is a crossing point, right? Like there is, because, well, you, you are always willing to take some amount of risk to reduce the cost, but at some point you are taking way too much risk to reduce the cost too much and, and vice versa, right? So there is... There is some equilibrium somewhere there, and the equilibrium is uh, probably not no fractional reserve at all. So, oh wow, that's interesting. Um, so I get it with our modern system. I'm thinking of like uh, somebody like John Law. You familiar with his story? Not really. Uh, he's basically like credited with being like the father of fractional reserve banking. He had mm -hmm. the um, the Mississippi Company. Uh, which basically handled mm. like the Louisiana purchase and all of that. Um, he operated in your country, France. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Louisiana was sold by France. Yeah, to the yeah. UK, and then France funded the the revolution <laughs> in the US. <laughs> like France backed the the you know the revolution in the US against the British after having sold Louisiana to the British. That was <laughs> that was kind of a deep move, but you know. Uh, Yes, yes. In many in many ways that makes the, the American Revolution a proxy war between between UK and France. If you look at it that way, it makes a lot of sense uh, to see what the US military is doing now. Like they're reproducing the same pattern through which America as we know it today came to be. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
you're touching on something gold in there. No pun intended. Well, a lot of people are going to be very pissed off by that, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> They'll be all right. This is this is historically accurate, uh, but it's it's never that simple either, right? Like I'm making a like historical event are the result of you know millions of people making decisions at any given time, and and you cannot like you cannot describe them so simply in a few sentences. But this is definitely something that happened to some extent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so Cremoni said, what if I had a solar powered quantum computer? Would that be a good mining rig? <laughs> uh, actually, probably not. You probably want to have a regular computer too. But it's, it's interesting, this, this image that quantum computer have, uh, that, you know, people think of them as, as computer that are, you know, like way faster than the computer that we have right now. Uh, but they are actually computers in a very different way. They are not like the same kind of computer, just way faster. They, they do completely different forms of computation, uh, which is way faster for some type of computation. Like actually there are some computation that are so difficult to do with the computer that we have right now that like for all intent and purposes, you, you cannot do them, right? It, it would require way too much resources. Even sometimes, you know, like more than all the computer in the world for billions of years that would not even be enough, right? Mm. Uh, that, that quantum computer can do like fairly easily, right? But it's true the other way around. There are a ton of computation that quantum computer are not very good at. Mm. Uh, so, so you should not expect... Uh, you shouldn't expect the quantum computer to be that magical new kind of computer that's going to replace all the computer we have now and do everything better because that's that's not it. Though where where computer computer are very interesting but a bit scary as well is that one of those computations that they are very very efficient at doing are computation we rely on for security to be very very difficult to make. Mm. Right. So. Uh, in crypto, for instance, we rely on digital signature. So with, with private key. So what that means is that you have your private key. It's it's a number, right? Everything in a computer is a number anyway, right? So it has to be, but uh, but it's actually a number, right? But but a very, very, very big number. Right. With you know many hundreds of digits, right? And and you do some computation with that number that produce a result. And from that result, people are going to be convinced that, yeah, you have to know that secret number because otherwise you wouldn't have been able to do that computation. Right. All right. But you don't want to reveal that secret number, right? So we rely on computation that are uh, easy to do in one direction, but extremely difficult to do in the other direction so that you can take your secret key do the computation, come up with the results, share the result with people, and they can be convinced that, yeah, you can do that computation, but they cannot do the computation the other way around um, to find back your private key. Right. Right? Right. So we rely on mathematical operations that are easy to do in one direction, but very difficult to do in the other direction. You're talking about something like SHA-256. Uh, not really, because SHA-256 is actually impossible to go in the other direction. Like, there, there is information losing. Like, it's... Uh, it only goes in one direction, though. It only goes in one direction, but right. not because it's hard to go in the other direction, just because... It's impossible. No, it's impossible, because, look, 
SHA-256 produce a 256-bit result. Right. Right? There is a certain number of different possible results in there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like there is a finite amount, yeah. right? And and but there is an infinite amount of stuff that you can fit to the function. Right. Right. So any any one of those results map to an infinite number of inputs. Mm-hmm. Right? Not just one. Right. And and therefore you cannot run the computation the other around to go find the input because there is not like one input to find. Exactly. Yeah. It's just like let's imagine um are you familiar with the modulo mathematical operation? With the what? Module mathematical operation? Modulo. Yeah. M- modular. No, I'm not. Yeah, modulo. So uh, modulo is is a mathematical operation uh, where it's effectively the remainder of a division. Okay. Right? So if I tell you like um um let's say 15 modulo 10 Mm-hmm. It's going to be five, right? Because when you divide 15 by 10, you get one and there is five that, that remains. Right. So that remainder is, is called the modulo. It's okay. I'm simplifying a bit. There are probably people screaming at the screen right now because it's different from negative number and all of that. But for this explanation, it's, it's going to be enough. Okay. Um, well, no, if I tell you, well, the result of the operation is five. What was my number? Mm. Like, well, it could have been five, but it could have been 15 or 25 or you like it. Ah, uh, anything that when you divide by 10, you get five at the end. Right. So yeah. um, it's, it's a very simple example, but SHA-256 is a function that works in that way. There is like, mm. it's not a two way function. There is only right. one way. Uh, and, and the other way you just get like, the but, you were, but you were explaining something that was one way as well. Yeah, so digital signature, they are not based on, on SHA-256. On, on Bitcoin right. and most of crypto, they are based on elliptic curve. Uh, elliptic curve are a bit complicated mathematically, but maybe a, a, a simple way to look at it is uh, multiplication. Hmm. Well, the reason why right? I brought so, SHA-256 was because they're both one way. SHA-256 is one way, but right. SHA-256 is like mathematically one way. There is like... Going the other way is not it an operation that makes sense. Right. Right. Um, whereas here I need a, I need something that goes both way, kind of, um, because I need to be able to prove verified. to you that I know the specific input. Right, 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 right. Right. Um, and before, so right now most systems use elliptic curve, but before that we used actually uh, uh, multiplications. Mm. Um, so I don't know how much you're familiar with prime number, but if you mod- if you multiply two prime numbers between each other, there is only one way to uh, to go the other way around from mm-hmm. the result. So say I have three and seven. Three times seven is twenty-one. There is no other way to write twenty-one as a multiplication than three times seven. Mm. Right? There is no other multiplication that's gonna give twenty-one. Mm. So if you take two prime numbers, prime numbers are like specific numbers, but it's fairly easy to find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, mathematically, we know to do that very well. Mm-hmm. And you multiply two together, you get a result. Mm-hmm. And that result, there is only one multiplication that gives that result. Right. Right. But like, if I give you twenty-one, you're gonna find three times seven like relatively easily. But I, I guess you probably kind of uh, sense already that doing three times seven is easier than me giving you 21 and you have to find out that it is three times seven. Right. 
right? Right. And but the number is like small enough so that you could do it, right? But if I do that with numbers that are hundreds of digit longs, there is no way you can do it. And even the modern computer is not going to be able to do it because it, it became too difficult. Mm, okay. Um, it doesn't mean like, you know, theoretically it's possible, right? Like you could go over all the numbers and check them all one by one. If you know, like it's, it's not a smart way to do it, but you know, you can imagine that you do that. Eventually you're going to find the right one. Right. Right. Except there are so many of those numbers. If you work with big numbers that you're never going to find it, even if you pick all the computers in the world and, and make them work on that problem for millions of years, it's still not going to get nowhere close to explore enough number to have a reasonable chance to find it. I see. Right. But in the other direction, you just have to do a multiplication, which like, even if I were to give you by end the multiplication to do with two numbers that would be a hundred of digit long, that would be very fastidious and very long and very annoying. Mm -hmm. But you know, like given enough paper, you could do it. Right. Like even without a computer. Yeah. And, and a computer can do it in a fraction of a second, right? right? Because, I mean, computers are very good at one thing, it is computing, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> hence the name. <laughs> um, so, so that operation you can do in one direction very easily. You cannot do in the other direction very easily. And an elliptic curve, you can use elliptic curve to build similar system where you can make the operation in one way very easily and the operation in the other way is like so hard that for all practical purposes, it's like no, you should consider time. that it's impossible. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, you froze. Can you see me? Did I freeze? Am I here yet? You froze for a moment. Oh, man. I don't know if it's you or me. Chat, am I good? Looks like I'm good on my end. Um, I have your sound. I have your picture now. So, okay, sorry. Where, okay, we're where, good. Where did, where did I cut? apologize you didn't everything went smoothly I, I caught all of that um okay so okay so back to quantum computer because this is where we were from quantum right. computer are very good at doing those operations the other way around mm. you give them a big number they can find the multiplication that came up with it very efficiently mm. and for elliptic curve it's the same the mathematics are a bit more complicated but the same way computer are very good at going the other way around and, and finding the solution. And this is why this is why it's such a big topic. Because all those crypto systems, and it's not just cryptocurrency, it's also like you use HTTPS to go on a website, it's using the same kind of mathematics behind. You use like payment online with your credit card, same kind of system. Like all of that, all of that is based on the same mathematics. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly if we can make quantum computer big enough, we can do those operations the other way around. And then what happened of all the cryptography? Uh, it's it's like, it's a big question. Mm, mm. It's it's literally a, a multi-billion dollar question. It's probably a trillion dollar question at this point. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, it is. Wow. Okay. Um, Have you exhausted that topic? I think so. Okay. Because you're so technical that I don't want to leave anything on the table. And um, I'm too ignorant to know when there's not more to speak about. Um, Jay Pylon said, thoughts on elections verification, verification tied to blockchain. You think that blockchain can be a solution for elections or should be? Or is there a much simpler solution? Uh, both. Uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> 
So yeah, you can do. You can, so one of the problem with election is that you have a set of constraints that is actually quite difficult to to solve, right? Because you want the vote to be private, right? But at the same time, you want to be able to count all the vote and make sure that nobody cheated, right? Right. And intuitively, you can already sense that you know there is something there that is not that easy to solve, right? Yeah. Um, there are ways to work around that with uh, zero knowledge proofs. Mm-hmm. But we're getting into like very fancy mathematics here, but effectively like a zero knowledge proof is a way for me to prove that I did some computation correctly and that the result of the computation is what I say it is without giving you the input of the computation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's not that intuitive that you could do that, but you actually can. Mm. And Okay, um, maybe what can I use as an example? One example that is often given is like, you know where is Waldo? Yes. Like, you know, the game where, with you know, there are... He got the white, and, uh, the white and red sweater on with the little hat. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And so so it's a children game, right? Like, there are books, and, and you have those images with, like, bazillions of people on them. Yeah. And one of those person in that picture is Waldo, and you have to find it. But there are, like, hundreds of people on, on this picture, Right. right? So now imagine that I wanted to prove to you that I know where Waldo is on, on the picture, mm-hmm. but I don't want to tell you where he is. Mm. I just want to prove to you that I know where he is. Uh, right. And intuitively that wouldn't be possible. Right. Because if I say, well, I know where he is, he's there. Right. But no, I've shown it to you. Right. So that, that doesn't work. That's mm-hmm. not a zero knowledge proof. That's a proof, but that's not the zero knowledge proof. Mm. And the way people uh, like suggest you could do it is like you take a big sheet of paper that is like much bigger than the book, mm-hmm. right? With the picture, and you poke a small hole in the middle of it mm. that is like the size of the head of Waldo, say. Okay. And just that, right? Then I can go behind that sheet of paper with my picture of Waldo and put the picture such as you can see just Waldo behind the hole. Mm. And because I can do that. I can prove to you that I know where he is, right? Because I can put it in front of the hole. Uh, but but you don't see any of the rest of the picture. You don't even see like where is the picture uh, relative to the hole. So you have no information about where Waldo is, right? Mm. And so that's the basic idea with zero knowledge proof is that this, this way, so there are equivalent mathematical constructs that you can use to prove that you know, you, you did some stuff or you know some stuff or you did some computation and you computed the result and there is the result without giving the inputs. And and using those, you can say, well, I counted all the votes. I counted it correctly. Here is the result of the election, but I'm not giving you who voted what. I got you. Right. You can you can use those kind of system. No, I think there is a big problem with doing that. And it's not a technical problem. It's like, or are you going to convince millions of people that you know, don't really know mathematics that this is a correct way that works to verify an election. Mm. Like you have a big trust issue there, right? And yeah. and trust in an election is is super important. Like there is nothing else really because like if people didn't believe, say in the US that Joe Biden is the president, like if there's nothing that the military or the army or the police or anything could do against like 3 million people being like, no, this dude is like not the president, yeah. right? So. So the fact that people trust the process and the result of the process is like paramount or the election is completely useless. Mm. So I'd say 
it's a good technical solution, but it's probably not a good solution if you include the human factor. Mm. Good technical solution, not a good social solution. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And that's actually like France is messed up in many ways, but I think the system is pretty good for elections. They have, um, so the way it works is that you have those boxes where you put your vote in, right? You, you go put your vote in an envelope and you put the envelope in the box and the box is like completely transparent and, and um, you know, like locked during the whole process. So anybody can be there and watch that, you know, like nobody is putting a bunch of envelopes in it or everybody can see that it is empty at the beginning of the day and all of that, right? And and then at the end of the day, like people open it and they count like everything that is on those envelopes and, and same, like it's a public thing. You can go, uh, like anyone can go and verify that this is done properly. So this is a more fastidious process than getting a computer to crunch the number. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, uh, this is a process that everybody can understand and it's pretty hard to cheat. Mm. A bit different from how we do it here in the U.S.? Yeah, well, I'd say like first in the U.S. you have like uh, uh, voting machines and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, that is <laughs> like that is easy to to screw with. So um, I don't know, right? Like, <laughs> say no more. Say no more. <laughs> um, Svinstead said, uh, "Bitcoin is cool, but metal energy food is power." What the hell is he talking? About? Metal energy food. I don't know what that is. Metal energy food. What the hell is this? That's like some Ninja Turtle stuff, man. So food and energy, yes. Uh, I would not though heat metal to to get energy. That probably doesn't work. He says, I googled this. It says, uh, "Can food give off enough energy to melt metal?" Is what's coming up. I don't think that's what he's talking oh. about. I don't think upcycling food. Food, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's called metal energy food is power. Svin said, please um please clarify. Um Amari, what, what do you want people to do with uh eCash? What are the what are the plans for eCash? But what do you want people to do with it? Do you want people to buy it and speculate? I want people on it? to use it more and than speculate. Oh crap. Did you die on me? Can Just you froze me? again my internet? It's that French internet. Yeah, I can hear you. I don't know. I have optic fiber in the. Oh. You know, like this is something that surprised me. I actually lived in the U.S. for uh, for a few years. In well, when I was working for Facebook, and I was in the Bay Area, and I was quite surprised how bad the internet was actually. Like, and how expensive it is. Um, I don't know if it's the same in everywhere in the U.S., but mm-hmm. I was I was uh, pretty surprised. Yeah, I've you know 500 meg symmetric optic fiber to the home. And it costs thirty euro a month, mm, mm. and it's like it's not, it's not crazy in some European country. You have even better than that. Like if you go to Romania, the same stuff is like ten euro a month, something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what he's saying. He's saying he, he's basically saying Bitcoin is cool, but metal, energy, and food is power. Oh. Um. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you you're missing. Um. You're missing. Um guns because you're gonna need guns to protect your metal energy and your food um at some point at some point yeah yeah but uh i would definitely throw um 
uh, defense uh, in there somewhere. But yeah, I think Bitcoin is like after you've settled all those, right? Like now that we have our metals, we have our energy, we have our food. Uh, how do we uh, transact with uh, billions of people in an in a yeah, efficient so way? Yeah, I think this is an interest. Uh, in, I think this is an interesting transition um, to like why are we doing what we're doing with Zcash, right? Mm -hmm. And there is something that we take for granted that is actually not granted at all, and it's cash. Right? Mm -hmm. like, you know, because, like, if we see each other and I pay you something in cash, mm -hmm. there is a transaction that goes from me to you directly. Nobody else is involved. Right. Right. That doesn't exist in digital form at all. Right. Right. Um, I mean, it's got a process. It has to go through some sort of processor. Yeah. But more importantly, before cryptocurrencies, all those processors were a centralized entity. Right. And that means that the day that entity decide that no, that payment is not going through. It's not going through. It's not going through, right? And there is nothing that you can do. And so effectively, your money is free money anymore, right? Like you cannot spend it like you want. And again, then me like, how often does happen? Well, that has happened with WikiLeaks. That has happened with the trucker in Canada, right? So right now, that doesn't happen like wide scale because right now there is still enough cash so that, you know, if you started doing that to everybody all the time, then people would revert back to cash, except cash is going away. Like it's disappearing at an alarming rate. And in some country, there is almost no cash at all, right? Like if you go to Sweden, for instance, I was, I was in Sweden, like before the pandemics, um, in many places, they don't take cash anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I was right? just like, at the airport and I tried to buy a burger and I pulled out cash and she was like, yeah, no, we don't, you, you got to have a credit card. And I was, <laughs> she was like, around the air. Yeah. yeah, she's like the entire airport is like that. Yeah. So, and like, this is coming, right. And more and more of like, even, even you say, well, I'm still going to use cash. Well, you cannot buy stuff online with cash. Right. So. <laughs> Uh, more and more of our life is, is moving online. Um, you, like that means that you cannot buy anything on the internet, for instance. Right. Like that, that greatly limits your options. Um, and, and cash is going like, it's going away more and more. Uh, and, yes. and what it's replaced with is a system where you don't control your money at all. And people don't quite realize because it hasn't been uh, abused as much in Western countries. Right. But, if I say you cannot spend your money, well, you don't have a home anymore, right? Because you cannot pay rent unless you, you own your home, right? But all the people that rent, like they don't have a home anymore. But even if you have your home, you don't have food anymore, right? <laughs> you, you cannot put gas in the car. You, like you are in an instant, mm. you are completely excluded from society. And, mm -hmm. and this is what the gulags, the gulags of this century, this is what they're going to look like. It's like, we're going to unplug you from the monetary system. And no, like, we don't even need to build a camp or whatever, right? Like, we <laughs> just do nothing with you. Like, there is nothing you can do. And this will be made possible with the CBDC as well. Oh, yeah, the CDBC is like the next step there. And what I find very fascinating with the CDBC is that it is the power in place Right now, the poor in place can do this kind of stuff through intermediaries such as banks and mm. payment processors, mm -hmm. right? With the CDBC, they don't need the banks and the payment processor anymore. Right. And I think the banks, they haven't quite caught up to that yet, uh, but it's really bad for them um, as well. Mm. And it's really bad for us because no, like 
you know, before you need to coordinate with the bank, but I many banks right? so that's, that's difficult, even though they, they can do it better and better as they learn, um, you know, as they learn how to do it. But without the banks being in the loop, uh, it's, it's really scary. Like, I think people don't quite realize how scary this is, but this is a level of control of people that have never existed at any point in history. Mm. Like never any dictator in history had this power ever. Mm. Like not not Hitler, not Mao, not Stalin. Like no. And and no, you can imagine like what what would they be able to do with that kind of power? And and I think the second thing that people don't quite realize is that well, you can say well, you know, but it was you know it was in Russia or in Germany or whatever, like almost a hundred years ago, like. It's not the world we live in anymore, but like, is it those people, they elected those leaders, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> they were living in democracy. Actually, this is like frighteningly similar to what we're living now. Like if you look at, at Germany before, you know, before the whole Nazi situation, mm-hmm. it was the Weimar Republic. The country was in debt. They printed a bunch of money to pay the debt. There was inflation through the roof. Like, tell me if that reminds you something, right? Then it caused shortages and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> have you heard of that situation somewhere? It sort right? of seems so, sounds some, familiar. <laughs> yeah. And at some point, some dude comes around and is like, you know what? The financial system is controlled by the Jews and it's their fault if you are all poor and there is all this inflation and all of that. And we're going to solve that problem, right? Mm. And at some point, this gets so bad that people are gonna like, okay, you know, all right, let's go with it, right? Yeah. Um, and those people, like, those people, they are like us. Mm. They are like us, and the majority of them, they eventually voted for that. Mm. And, and, like, this is something, actually, like, if you have not understood Oh, you could, you know, eventually, uh, like a series of events could lead you to go for that and and vote for a guy like that. Yeah. You probably would, right? Because at some point, you need to understand all that came came up to be. We all have the kind of bias that can be exploited to do that. You need to understand those bias in yourself, like to look at it and do the work on yourself. You know, to 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 be confident that you will do the right thing. If you have not done that, you almost certainly will when the day comes uh, do the wrong thing. Mm. Millions of people did it, right? It's mm. it's the normal thing to do. Mm. Mm. All right, since you've um, scared my, uh, half of my uh, audience off. <laughs> <laughs> with the well, but that's what I'm seeing with the CDBC, right? So I'm like, we really need the plan B, you know, against that. and. Uh, in the beginning, you know, Bitcoin seemed to be the plan B, but no, it's not a good medium of exchange. It's it's not a good plan B. Because mm. what are you going to use to trade Bitcoin? You cannot transact on chain, like especially if there is a crackdown of the financial system in like 10, 20 years or so, and people cannot use it, like all the transactions from Bitcoin, then what are you going to do? Like the chain is going to be 10 times more contested than it is now. Right. Right? You're not going to pay like, $200 fees to, to buy, you know, like bread or whatever, right? Right. It just doesn't make sense. Unless the dollar have gone down <laughs> so much that it makes sense. I hope not. But um, <laughs> that's, you know, that, like, that's not going to work. The way people use Bitcoin right now is through intermediaries. Right. Right. So 
you're back to square one. You can control the intermediaries and and voila, you know, like mm. <laughs> centralization. Yeah. Yeah. So you cannot control bitcoins, but you cannot you can control the intermediaries through which people use Bitcoin. And so it's just as good as controlling Bitcoin mm. as far as, as the authorities are concerned. So mm. this doesn't solve the problem. And this is why we're working on on eCash. Um because we want to make sure that the system is scalable enough, you know, uh, so that people can actually use it. And and really, this is this is what I want to impress on people. Like this is important to learn to use it because mm. you know, when, once it's time to use it, it's too late. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so what happened with Bitcoin Cash, man? You were over here at Bitcoin Cash. It seems like things were going honky dory. And then uh, the split, yeah. the fork came. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, that's that's a bit depressing, to be honest. Like, it's like seeing your baby, you know, start taking meth and and, <laughs> and cocaine and whatever and then doing random crime and, and ruining the life, right? Like, oh that's, my really, God. that's really the impression I have with BCH. Um, like, like, really what happened is that there was misaligned incentives uh, with the funding, right? And we're effectively carrying, we were doing like the load-bearing work effectively, but the load-bearing work is not like the flashy work or anything. And uh, we were struggling the whole way to, to have the kind of funding that would you know, allow us to continue to do that and, and also like take the step to not just do maintenance, but build the next iteration. Uh, of that thing, you know, like bring it to the next level. And we were never really in a position to do that. So at some point we were like, okay, we need to have some kind of self-funding mechanism in there. And most of the community was against that. And so we're like, all right, um, uh, then we're going on with eCash. And ever since then, like BCH has been doing, you know, um, so it's rather sad to see, like even when you leave the project, you know, like you created it, it's kind of your baby in a way you want it to, you, like you want it to be wrong, right? You want it to be like, okay, I thought there was a funding problem and, and the, the incentive were misaligned, but but actually I was wrong and it works anyway. You know, like that would have been great, but uh, clearly, unfortunately, I was right. <laughs> so um, again, my ignorance won't allow me to understand what you just said. Yeah. So you have to break that down. Um, guys want to take on VC money or something like that? To handle the money problem? Uh, no, we don't need to because we have uh, we have a self funding mechanism. No, I mean with BCH though. With BCH, that was what was happening. Uh, so BCH mostly the the work was funded by uh, whales, effectively. Okay. Uh, people, you know, people who had the large amount of, of BCH. speculators, um, Spe- uh, whale speculators, were, were pumping the coin. Well, people who had large holding in BCH and and wanted it to to be well maintained, you know, so that the value of their holding would uh, <laughs> yeah. would be you know would do well, right? Um, but a lot of those people um, they were not like technical people or anything. They didn't really understand what was needed. And on one end, you're there, you try to explain them, and on the other end. Um, you have people like selling the dream effectively and then crypto you know like people want to believe the dream but in that case you know it was not uh it was not realistic and we can see that reflected now mm. and and so explain the self-funding mechanism and how that works 
Oh, so um, in so every time a block is found, right, on on Bitcoin system, every time a block is found, there is an amount of new money that is created and that is sent to the miner that find the block. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been modified in eCash, and there's a, a, a portion of that eight uh, percent that goes into two funds, so four and four percent. Four percent goes to us for the development work, and four percent goes into an entity that we call the GNC, where large holders and, and uh, large holders can can decide how to allocate those funds to to you know fund stuff in the ecosystem. Mm. And this is from each transaction, from each block. Each block, right. My bad. Interesting. Okay. That makes sense. Um, Tobias Ruck said eCash on Coinbits app. I actually don't work with Coinbits app anymore. Um, and they're a Bitcoin maxi company. So uh, they probably won't take on eCash. Um, That's unfortunate. Like, I don't get the whole maximalist mindset. It's, it's very bizarre. Yeah. To me, it's very reminiscent to you know like the the anti-crypto people that yeah <laughs> like the discord is very similar right they are like oh well you know, i believe in the dollar or i believe in gold and whatever and and everything that is you know a bit further away from that is a scam right and and those people it's like they made one more step and they included like btc into the group and then they go the you know they they go having the same discourse exactly that's that's a very bizarre things to do but uh, yeah, I could never really wrap my mind around the Bitcoin Maxi thing because when I think about, well, when you talk crypto, we're using the term decentralization. So if we're talking about decentralization, that means choice, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, I want a lot of different currencies. I want to have the choice in what transaction I'm going to uh, you know, use for you know, various uh, purposes, right? I want that. I, 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 we need to diversify money, right? When we look at money today, money is diversified. It's not just a dollar. You got the ruble, you got the rupee, you got the yen, you got money is technically diversified. So why wouldn't we diversify crypto? <laughs> like that's the thing that just, I can't just wrap my mind around. Yeah, plus obviously there are different trade-offs that are gonna make sense and that people are gonna want to make. Um, like, look, if you look, just look at BTC and Ethereum, yeah, um, you have a very obvious trade-off. Like, Ethereum is way more complicated. It has an account model that doesn't scale as well and, and so on. But at the same time, it do smart contract, right? And some people seem to see value in that. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And you, you can't get the same property you get rid of Bitcoin on Ethereum. And, Wait, say that and again. You, you, it, you, you glitched like, out what you, when you said that. You won't get the same properties, um, you know, from one to the other. It's it's like mm. it's it's just different trade off. It's different point in the design space, right? It's you know, like you bring that to any other market, it's completely obvious that it's nonsense. It's like, well, I only want sports car, right? I don't want. <laughs> I don't want Berlin. I don't want SUV. I only want sports car. This is the only car that makes sense. Well, no, I mean, like that's, <laughs> I don't know how to put it, but you know, yeah. there are going to be like plenty of car with different people that have different uses for their car and, and, and that's fine. Right. And right. I don't see like, this is the same for every market that exists for every product that exists. There is no reason why that would be any different for crypto. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I um, I totally, I totally agree with that. Um, but however, I guess there is a bit of insecurity behind that. 
right? It's like, oh, maybe. Yeah, competition. Maybe the other are, are, are going to eat my lunch, right? Like maybe <laughs> they are too good and I'm not competitive. I don't know. But yeah. realistically speaking, Bitcoin, you know, just because it's been there forever, it's, you know, it, it has a proven track record, uh, at least, you know, within the crypto space. Um, it's very secure. And also it has a property, I think, that the Bitcoin people understand, but the rest of the crypto space doesn't. Mm. It's like the fact that they changed nothing mm. is a value in itself. Mm. Because even though you know that it's never going to be really good, because it's never going to really improve in any meaningful way, mm-hmm. right? You know that in 10 years or 20 years, you're going to get the exact same thing, right? Whereas if I have some Ethereum somewhere in 20 years, I don't know what I have. I don't know the property of that thing. There's probably the property of the thing that I have are probably going to be very different in 20 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And maybe better by the standard of the Ethereum community, mm-hmm. but is this going to be better by my standard? Right. And, right. and is it actually what I want? I don't know. Whereas with Bitcoin, I know that I'm not going to get the best stuff, but I know what I'm getting and I know what it is. I know what it's going to be in 10 years. I know what it's going to be in 20 years. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a desirable property, I think. Uh, and I think that's a property that, that the very, you know, fast paced innovation of the crypto space uh, tends to overlook a bit. Mm, mm, mm. I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree. However, if the Bitcoin maxis want to cut me a check and make me a Bitcoin maxi, um, <laughs> <laughs> I can send you my bank account and routing number and we can work something out. <laughs> I can be persuaded to understand your philosophy. <laughs> and that goes for any coin out there. Well, not any. I can't say any, but if uh, if it sounds sound, um, I'm down. Um, Amari, the conversation today has been absolutely exhilarating, absolutely educational. I have to watch it three, four times again just to hear it back. Um, if you ever want to talk about any topics or you want to bring up eCash or you know you want to talk about something new and great, as you can see here, I'm holding on to my real cash tightly. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be valid someplace. Probably have some up there. there. <laughs> Not the same, but eh. There is something that we do in pretty much every country, but the U.S. is having those in different shape and colors and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's that's a great innovation. You guys should think about it. What different shapes? Well, they are all rectangles, but different sizes. Different sizes, right? My bad. Different sizes, right? Yeah, yeah. We all have all ours in one shape. But you're right. That, that's, yeah, that's I, I don't know. Blind people do it in the U.S., for instance. Like all the bills, they're all the same size and they feel the same. Yeah. So, so what do blind people do to pay? You know, maybe um, they, maybe they can feel the the ink on here, and they can actually feel the one. I'm wondering if they can. Feel I don't know. The one. I don't know. It could, it could be. Uh, I want to say I heard somebody say that blind people can tell the difference between money, but I could be wrong. Who knows? Um, I'm going to be on with Michael Malice in about 15 minutes. You guys can meet me over there on his channel. It's going to be a very interesting conversation. Amari, um, I uh, took uh, Cyprian's class, so I'm familiar with eCash. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. He's got the uh, Bitcoin Mystery School. I always tell people if you want to learn about Bitcoin and crypto, you need to take uh, his class. Yeah, you're going to definitely learn something very different 
from what all the people that are trying to pedal their stuff uh, teach. <laughs> yeah. Because really, this is the crux. Like, this is the number one problem in the crypto space. Everybody has something to tell you, and therefore nobody is really going to say something objective. But uh, it's probably one of those places that is a bit different. Uh, first, like Vin or Cyprian now, um, like, he has no coin, right? Like, he's not someone who created the coins that he's trying to sell it to you. So. Right. The only thing he has to sell to you is is the knowledge and experiences he's acquired over the years. Right. Exactly. Yes. There's no bias. You're going to get the real for real. Yeah. When I took his course, it was a three day course. Um, Like the first day, maybe 30 minutes or an hour in, I'm like, because I think it's a three hour course. Like the first 30 minutes or an hour, I'm just like, it's just like you know all the neurons are firing in my brain and it's just amazing amazing information yeah because everything you heard before that is oh put a bunch of money on that and it's gonna go to the moon and then you're gonna be a millionaire right yeah yeah <laughs> and he's talking about something fundamentally different yeah yeah absolutely um ladies and gentlemen this has been another sharp conversation uh this will be up on uh apple spotify and soundcloud in the coming days hopefully <laughs> so I'll see you next time. Uh, Amari, hold on while I close out the show. Okay. <laughs>